Brick Moon Fiction presents Such People in It by Eric Del Carlo Narrated by Nicholas Thurkettle The last coin a person will ever trade in is dignity. This I know firsthand. Possess all the money and goods you like. Have cached a thousand memories of travel and exploits and lovers. At the end, or at least with the end near enough to be seen in some detail, you will cling only to your precious, dwindling reserve of human dignity. Once I had a wife, a career, a house, all the accepted and more or less necessary paraphernalia of a respectable life. Sometimes I cherished every bit of it. Sometimes it all felt unspeakably fraudulent to me. But all the joys and crises of my lifetime have since flattened out into an unbroken experience. My triumphs and catastrophes seem curiously similar now, of a whole, as if a great overriding perspective had taken the frantic meaning out of things and left me with a cool, godlike understanding of the human condition. Or, as Mick once explicated, what a drag it is getting old. A means to hang on to some part of one's dignity reserve, I had discovered, was not to be a bore, or a crank, or a schmuck, or a... What did the young people say now? Ah, yes. A douchebag. Douchebag. What a sterling epithet. And so I had made a conscious effort not to be any of those things, and thereby I maintained a certain air of composure. I perhaps walked a little more upright than my more irascible fellows at the living care facility. Perhaps the staff treated me a bit more civilly as well. I got looked in the eye when spoken to. I can't overstate how gratifying a consideration that is, at this stage, when others are being treated as mewling sacks of troublesome meat. Then again, those others often complained, fussed, spewed their bitterness and resentment on whomever was nearby. Whereas I roamed our facility's passageways and grounds freely, always groomed, always smartly attired, I had an arsenal of smiles and pleasant commentary for anyone I encountered. I was that amiable and dapper Mr. Willingham. And if that seemed somewhat phony to me, so be it. None of the staff gave me grief when I went outside to smoke, usually taking along with me a pint bottle of tart gin. It wasn't a bad place as such facilities went, yet there was always that sense that one had been dragged here, forced from one's cozy domicile. I had seen a good deal of history, just by dint of having lived through it, I knew what horrors humans could visit upon other humans, especially when relocations and camps were involved. But this wasn't a camp, and I was well aware that I couldn't quite manage on my own anymore. I liked being outdoors, even if it was still on the facility's premises. We were on the outskirts of a medium-sized town that had never expanded into a sprawl. There were old pastures and unincorporated lands, a few last scatterings of the planet which hadn't been developed then left to rot. I had the feeling that this bucolic hamlet of ours had quietly escaped some cultural calamity. The immediate vicinity, which was pretty much all I saw these days, consisted of the grounds and the broad open field behind, at the far end of which a grade school lay. Between, there was a woods at one side and fenced farmland on the other. It allowed for a good deal of greenery, which I enjoyed. Geese flew overhead, with hawks and turkey vultures for company. Lots of bird song and frog croaks. Nature, reminding you she was still fecund. Oh, yes. And in those woods off to the left, 
there also stood a grim windowless structure, squat like a blockhouse. It was just inside the trees, but not entirely screened by them. A road ran to the building, and lately, it seemed, a number of vehicles had been coming and going. I tried to recall if there had been any activity around the place when I'd first arrived here, but I couldn't be sure. Now, though, something appeared to be happening inside it. I had my view. I had my smokes and gin. My mind was still viable. I was ambulatory. If I were religious, I would be thanking some deity for these gifts. As it was, I just felt lucky. It wasn't any bother having the schoolyard within sight. Cecily and I had never had children. For a time, long ago, we had thought maybe we were letting the species down. But then we had watched the world overbreed itself and had mutely congratulated ourselves on not adding to the hubbub. The youngsters ran about at their recess and went obediently inside when the bell cut the air. I felt bad for them sometimes, remembering the boredoms and misdirections of those years in my own life. But maybe education had vastly improved its techniques. The children were spread out over all the surrounding space as they came and went. Those who weren't systematically dropped off and picked up in the parking lot cut across the broad field and came within salutation distance of the rear of our facility. I usually wasn't up in the morning. I'd had decades of being forced to get out of bed at ghastly hours, and now I slept as late as I could manage. But I was often outside when classes finally quit and the younglings came pouring out. As with all the other people in my limited proximity, I was friendly with the kids. I understood that they must regard the inhabitants of this facility with some horror. They saw the other shrunken, hobbled characters in the back gardens of our institute, and they thought, not wrongly, Please, never me. Not that. But there I would be, standing and gazing out at the greens, or occupying the rearmost bench, sometimes with a book open on my lap, often with a long, thin black cigarette going. Unlike others who lived here, I imagined I seemed aware of my surroundings. I smiled and nodded in a way that showed I knew who and what I was smiling and nodding at. And eventually some of the young folks started to say hi. I introduced myself. Like those looks in the eye I received from the staff, these acknowledgments meant a good deal to me. Somebody was still taking me seriously in this world. It gave me an uptick in dignity. Hello, Mr. Willingham. Hi there, Victoria. What up, Mr. Willingham? How are you today, Carter? They seemed to range from the lispiest kindergartner to fifth or sixth graders, I never had any admonishments for them, no tisk-tiskings about grammar or what I might perceive as proper forms of expression. They could, and should, do with language what they wanted. It would only serve to keep it alive and vital in the end. I kept the nip-bottle of gin out of sight when the kids were around, but I wasn't about to do without my tobacco. A few of my young passerby cautiously reproached me. My mommy says people shouldn't smoke. And she's right. My mommy says it's harmful and addictive. She's right again. I've smoked for fifty years. It's bound to do me harm. Mommy says that secondhand smoke... Run along now, Bethany. Inevitably, a couple of the braver and more curious ones lingered, and the lingering grew lengthier and lengthier until these were almost visits. A visit was quite the bestowal here at the living care facility, it was the surest sign that one mattered to the outside world. I continued to be cordial. 
I had few illusions that the youngsters didn't also view me with some of the same horror reserved for the more decrepit specimens on the grounds. I knew that I more resembled a caricature of myself at this advanced age. Certainly I felt less male than I had since childhood. This wasn't just the downhill side of life. This was the brink of my own mortality, and I damn well knew it. But I didn't have to be a douchebag about it. So I wasn't. There was one of these grade schoolers who seemed a little apart from the others, though he was among those who lingered regularly there at the rear fringe of the grounds. He had a quiet manner, a thoughtful face. I remembered myself as being a sensitive and introspective boy, although I avoided the temptation to romanticize that time since my behavior had only gotten me beaten up by beastlier boys, and since I'd never gone on to be a famous poet or anything of the sort, my delicate sensibilities hadn't ever paid off. The lad's name was Jemmy. I mistook it, understandably, I think, for Jimmy at first. But I caught the subtle wince when I addressed him directly, and finally I asked him to spell it. I didn't make any hoopla about him having a girl's name. That truly would have been douchebaggy behavior on my part. Jemmy it was. He came to see me with others, but never quite seemed to belong to the larger group. He wasn't shy, but he chose his words and so spoke less than some of the rest. I would ask the kids about their lessons sometimes. Once Jemmy referred to an ampersand as a numeral eight gone to a fancy ball. The others with him, a mix of boys and girls, fell silent for a count of three, then burst into nervous laughter. I looked him in the eye and nodded. Vehicles continued to arrive at the squat building back behind the tree line. With every industrial truck and mud-spattered SUV which appeared, the sight somehow became more sinister to me. The anonymity of the edifice took on secretive overtones. Really, though, it was just a concrete stump of a structure, unimaginatively gray, lacking all architectural lines. Without any windows, there was no sense of the activity inside. But those vehicles couldn't be empty, even if they were only transporting personnel. How long had the building been there? I asked around at the facility and got wildly divergent answers. Some said it had stood there for twenty years or more. Others insisted it had been put up recently, a fast job, so that it had materialized seemingly overnight. I thought on it, because I still liked to think, to puzzle over things. My best Holmesian deduction was that this was an old commercial building, or maybe a decommissioned military site, and that it had lately been revamped and now was being put to some fairly urgent use. That was all well and good as far as deductions went, but then the sounds started up. They began in midweek. They were thirty or forty-second discharges, so low-key I at first mistook them for mere ringing in my ear. But when they came again, it was in the same octave. I turned my head this way and that, and finally decided, yes, they were coming from the blockhouse. They had a mechanical tenor to them, to be sure, but there was something laced into the bursts as well a clamor which seemed to possess an almost organic quality. Like, well, like something alive, screaming beneath the low din of a powerful machine. I gave the place more study than usual when I was outside on my afternoon vigils. Almost daily now I held court with the school kids. Sometimes I was relieved when they went on their merry way and I could finally treat myself to a belt of gin, but I kept up my end of our amicable relationship, Jemmy continued to put in appearances, often offering some precocious conversational tidbit that I would find myself mulling over hours later. 
One day I was out on my bench, mine because almost no other residents ventured this far back from the living center. I had a trade paperback with me, one with a burgundy cover. A cigarette was clamped in my teeth. I was absorbing the words of the book, also pausing to look over my reading glasses at the blockhouse. More heavy trucks had arrived and departed. There were figures moving about outside, including one who had stepped out from the pine trees. My distance vision wasn't perfect, but he, the person appeared to be male, was holding something to his eyes. Binoculars? And he was looking toward the grade school. I was beginning to feel like somebody with a covert purpose, surveilling a suspicious locale in order to... What are you reading, Mr. Willingham? He had come up quietly or else he'd approached with all the normal noises and I had simply been focused on my book and the blockhouse. I was startled enough that I sucked in too much smoke at once. As I unobtrusively choked, I held up the big floppy paperback, in part to see if the gifted lad could pronounce the writer's name. Jack Kerouac, Jemmy said immediately. I managed a small face-saving cough, then furtively ground out my cigarette. You know him? Sure. I've read on the road. I blinked, trying to imagine a young mind encountering that beatnik manifesto. How old was this boy exactly, anyway? Ten? Did you read that for school, Jemmy? He shook his head no. He had a way of doing that with long, slow turns of his head, keeping his large eyes in his thoughtful face trained directly on yours. So we talked over on the road, and I told him about the Kerouac I was currently reading, Rereading, actually. I realized that the main gaggle of youngsters had already come and gone. The light was slanting on the green field. It was just me and him. I invited him to sit with me on the bench. It was a first. For him. For any of his fellows. I lit a fresh smoke. Then, because I felt a decided hankering, I took my pint from a coat pocket and had a long swallow of gin. He watched, without evident alarm. Getting my breath back after the welcome drink, I said, What do you suppose goes on over there? I indicated the windowless gray building. The bunker? he asked, no mistaking the capital B. Why is it called that? He was ragged all thin, and when he shrugged, it pressed two rounded points of bone up against the fabric of his shirt. Don't know. It's always had that name. Yes, but what was always to a ten-year-old... I tried to get the history of the structure from him, but he had only childhood rumor and juvenile legend to go on. Many, many mysterious and nefarious events had been traced back to the bunker, according to his classmates. Those in younger grades said witches lived there. Older students preferred to believe it was inhabited by aliens. The most convincing intelligence he seemed to possess was that the place had been locked up and dormant when he'd started coming to this school. Seven months ago, the road through the woods had been repaved, and after that the vehicles had started to come. Now all the kids were really afraid to go near it, and not just because the teachers had always said the site was out of bounds. The children had heard the strange noises, too. The new occupation of the building seemed menacing. I have had the same feeling, I murmured. I wanted another hit of gin, but settled for lighting another thin black cigarette. Jemmy gave me his big, searching eyes. "'What do you want to do about it?' he asked. It was a damn straightforward question. I gave it the moment of consideration it deserved. 
Then, half-joking and half, well, not joking, I said, Tell you what, Jemmy, go home and think of some theories. Tomorrow, at this same time, we'll see if we can't puzzle the thing out some, okay? I was up earlier than usual the next day, feeling a buzzing restlessness. I realized after a bit that it was a sense of engagement. After I had become a retiree, when Cecily was still alive, she had made certain I didn't fall into ruts of inactivity. It was okay to sloth about now and then, but she wouldn't let me become grotesquely inactive, either physically or intellectually. Cecily was a wise woman, and the dearest confederate I've ever had. Before noon, while the school day was still underway at the far end of the field, I found myself venturing out. The staff were used to my little sojourns at the rear of the gardens. Today I slipped past the perimeter, technically breaking the house rules by going off the grounds. I walked out onto the grass, resplendent in the sunshine, feeling the simple reassurance of firm earth beneath my feet. I didn't make for the bunker. A few vehicles were parked behind the building, but I'd seen none arrive today. The blank exterior walls continued to maddeningly hide any hint of activity within. I strolled farther out toward the middle of the field. It brought me nearer the bunker without giving away the fact that I was spying on it. Some part of me recognized the essential childishness of my endeavor. I was practically buying in to Jemmy's classmates' outlandish gossip about the site. Yet nobody at the living care facility knew what was happening there. Those people in the bunker were our neighbors, yet no word, nothing, had gotten out. Nor was there anything in the local press. This morning I'd gone back through the newspapers, which one of my fellow residents helpfully hoards. No word there about any new industrial ventures in town that might account for all this. At midfield I stopped. Not for the first time it occurred to me that this could be mowed to be made into a football-slash-soccer field, but the school property I'd learned ended at the periphery of playground. Seemed a waste, even if the unspoiled view was nice for the downhillers in the home, like myself. Personally, I would have made the sacrifice. For the kids. Suddenly I was aware of movement, over toward the bunker. A figure had stepped out through the screening pine and was striding, with some purpose, toward me. Instincts that felt long unused nonetheless sprang to vibrant readiness. My backbone stiffened, lifting me several inches. I turned and set myself into a knees-bent stance. I curled my right hand into a fist that felt about as weighty as a taxidermied sparrow. But I could reach my gin bottle with my other hand. The bottle was glass. It could do a skull some damage if I brought it down hard enough. That same part of me from earlier knew this was more childlike fantasy. But as the figure approached, making straight for me, no mistaking... I reassessed that notion. It was a man, a harried-looking man, one radiating an air of aggravation, even from several yards away. He said, I see you with those children, almost every day. I stood my ground. I had been halfway expecting something like this, I realized. Some parent who thought it suspicious that I interacted so often with the grade schoolers or who was outraged that I committed the high crime of enjoying a cigarette in their presence. That last might have some justification to it. But this wasn't a schoolchild's parent, I felt sure. He had come from the bunker. Suddenly I thought I recognized him even. He was the one with the binoculars yesterday. 
What's it to you? I said. The tough guy phrase felt vaguely ludicrous. He had halted. He was glaring at me, but strangely, without overt hostility. His appearance was disheveled, badly shaven, suit rumpled, tie askew. You've talked with them, the man went on. You must know them, know things about them. Now who was the creep, I wondered. I said, I don't much care for your demeanor, young man. He wasn't young. He looked to be in his forties. But an advantage of this age is that you can call just about anyone young and make it sound like a bit of an insult if you do it right. He blinked. He seemed to grow suddenly aware of his appearance and deportment. Straightening his blue and yellow striped tie, he said, I'm sorry. My name is Stromberg. Dr. Kane Stromberg. John Willingham. He gave me a respectful nod. Mr. Willingham, I could use your help. Your advisement. It means letting you in on a fantastical secret, one so classified that the government would be in its rights to have me executed just for attempting to bring you in on it. But in a very short amount of time, none of that is going to matter. He puffed out his stubbly cheeks. Then he looked me in the eye. Are you interested in saving the world? He asked me. Ten minutes later, I was inside the bunker. Just like that. Well, there were complications, or at least security measures, to contend with. The door into the structure was a huge steel affair, and Dr. Stromberg had to put his eyes to a recessed scanner to gain access. But he took me in, and we waved off anyone who seemed perturbed by my presence in what I took to be the Sanctum Santorum. There were a number of personnel, all in various stages of haggard exasperation, much like Stromberg himself. This, then, was an overworked group, operating under great stress. They were also, from the look of the inordinately advanced equipment inside the bunker, professionals, technicians and scientists and engineers. The blockhouse's interior was utterly dominated by a looming complex contraption, a gizmo so far beyond my comprehension it might as well have sprung from the pages of science fiction. It was a mass of struts and panels and lights and cables, and somewhere in the midst lay what looked like an empty astronaut's couch. The personnel were fluttering all about the massive device. Since I'd been vouched for by Stromberg, they now ignored me. The harried men and women appeared to be checking and rechecking every possible coupling and component, a mammoth and seemingly unending chore. I stood with Stromberg beneath the... thing. Cover your ears, he said. Nonplussed, I did. Just in time. The sounds came. The burst was, as before, nearly below audibility, but this close to the source I felt the mechanized-slash-organic noises as invasive sensations. My innards twanged unpleasantly. A wave of dizziness struck. The scientific crew members somehow carried on with their work during the uneasy clamor. When it cut off, Stromberg said without further prologue, We are a government military project. Top secret, like I said. Our team was tasked with assembling this particular unit. There are sites like this, well, a number of them are operating, let's say, all dedicated to the same outcome. Widespread, it's conjectured, at least some of the teams will succeed, or perhaps have already succeeded. But the more successes, the better, of course. I didn't see anything to gain by prompting him. I waited. He continued. Okay, here's where it begins to get fantastical. 
I'm not going to apologize in advance. These are the facts. He again went to straighten his striped tie. We have been receiving messages. Messages from Earth. Earth of the future. How is that possible? Quantum non-locality. Splitting photons through synthetic crystals. It doesn't matter how. A better query is, why should we believe these messages? Two very good reasons. The dates of transmission are a part of the messages. Now our planet orbits its sun, you may have heard. It goes round and round predictably. Very predictably, in fact. But the Earth doesn't pass through the exact same space with its every revolution, not the precise cubic volumes time after time. The natural variations, however, are calculable. These messages leave a trail to a point of origin, not just time but in physical space. Those messages come from an orbital point which this planet will precisely occupy at the same future point from which they purport to have been transmitted. I had followed that, so I carefully nodded. Stromberg, encouraged, went on. The second reason for trusting that all this is real is pretty damn conclusive, though oddly more difficult to believe in. Well, again, I will just say it. The messages started coming in seven months ago, targeted to specific high-clearance channels so that they would immediately get the full attention of top levels of the government and military. In those seven months, the messages have contained a series of predictions. Or predictions, really. They aren't prophecy. They are history, as far as the senders are concerned. They have pinpointed in advance for us, with unerring accuracy, more than enough events to substantiate their validity. Not just cultural or political events either, though these have been included in the messages, but geological incidents as well. Earthquakes specified to their exact occurrence, duration, intensity. The messages from the future are authentic. He watched me. He needed me for something. I felt the momentousness of all this, like an added atmospheric pressure, closing me in. But I didn't show him any skepticism because I had none to give. I believed what he had told me, as a younger man, one who let ego-driven incredulity get in the way, might not have. I did, however, have an intelligent observation to put to Dr. Kane Stromberg. And I take it something's very wrong in the future. Am I right? He didn't answer right away. But I was right. We went into an office. It was crammed with supplies, crates of food, water, weapons. But there was space enough for us to sit. A plague is about to break out. In our time. Soon. Very soon. How soon? I asked, because this seemed something worth interrupting him for. Stromberg shook his head tiredly. Don't buy any green bananas. His chest hitched. It was a try at a laugh but it came out closer to a sob. It's a manufactured epidemic, the most cunning example of bio-warfare yet seen in the world, though no one will ever know who implemented it. It will amp up aggression, make people into homicidal maniacs. Its spread will be exponential, and it absolutely cannot be stopped. It will get everywhere, affect everyone. People will be at each other's throat, literally, in a matter of days. Now it did hit me, all the awful fantasticalness of this. I went limp on the folding chair. Jesus. Abruptly I sat up again. Wait, though. Someone survives. Someone who's sending messages from the future. A gleam came briefly to his bloodshot eyes. 
You're quick, Mr. Willingham. Yes. The bioplague is keyed to take out humans, all of them, every woman, man, and child, but only humans. So who survives? Humans plus. Homo superior. There is an evolutionary leap underway right now, right before our eyes. The children belonging to this most recent generation are the best we've yet produced as a species. It's not nakedly evident. Hell, they seem like just another crop of squalling brats. But they're the next genetic step, designed by nature or God or Abercrombie and Fitch or who knows who and how, to take the human race to its next stage. Some of those survive the plague. Children. Yes, children who are somehow immune to the contamination and who also manage to not get ripped apart by the planet full of bloodthirsty lunatics. They grow up, and they build the transmission machine, and they send along as well the design for that device out there. He waved toward the door we'd come through. We constructed that from their blueprints. It's astoundingly advanced. With it, we can impel a person forward in time, to rendezvous with the enclave of survivors. Jesus, I could only repeat. Jesus, indeed. There's more. The impeller out there. It's not your classic time machine, not like from the movies. It can break down a person's structural essence, decode him or her to the very last genetic decimal, if you will, and shoot the results forward where the machine's counterpart, we're told, can reassemble that veritable glut of information into a living being. But the personality will be virtually lost. The memories will not hold. It'll be the same person who arrives in the future, at least as far as biomechanics go. But the character, I'm afraid, won't survive. A bilious feeling was welling up inside me, maybe because this really was too overwhelming. Or maybe because I had a ghost of suspicion as to where all this was going for me. Stromberg moved once more to tidy his tie, then let his hands drop to his lap. His eyes shone again, this time with tears. We need, he said, a child to impel forward. Those future survivors are too few in number. They can't repopulate successfully. The plague is still active. No one who isn't already evolutionarily disposed to resist the bio-disease will last. They need their own kind. They need ones who are a part of the leap forward. Unfortunately, we who are operating these launch sites don't have any test to tell one child from another. Our orders were to survey a suitable stock, make a best guess. Stock, I said. Guess. I could have gone on dully repeating his words one by one. I wasn't accusing him of anything, certainly not callousness. I saw the tears now making their way down his stubbled cheeks. This person, and hundreds or thousands like him, had been given an impossible duty. Find a child to send forward to help replenish the earth. I felt his pain, or some approximation of it. It was enough to sting my own eyes. Stromberg said, if you still got that bottle of booze on you, now would be the time. I smiled, took out the gin, and held it toward him. He tried to indicate I should go first, but I was having none of that. I watched him down a healthy swig and only then took one of my own. I've spent time with the kids, I said. You have, and you're not a parent or grandparent of any of them. You, maybe, 
can be logical. Perhaps I can. I lifted the bottle and said, Brave new world. When I passed it to him, he repeated the phrase, giving it a sullen intonation, missing my point. I didn't correct him. He looked up suddenly and said, Cover your ears. Once again, I did so. This time the sounds were different, lacking the stressed organic tones. Perhaps the big device was nearly fully calibrated. I looked around the overloaded room at the survivalist supplies. The gin let me croak out a fairly convincing laugh. I said, You're going to try to ride it out. Yeah. Even though this imminent plague will affect everyone on the planet, no matter where, including you in here. Yes. But you're going to make the effort anyway. Once our work is done, yes. The impeller will only work one time. I said, I don't want a place in here as payment for services. I think I can help you. I will certainly try. But I'm not spending my last moments in the bunker. That's what the children at the school call this place, you know. The bunker. He managed a grunt that was as close to a laugh as I had contrived. I never said we were offering you a spot, Mr. Willingham. John. John. I'm Kane. Maybe you would have made the offer, Kane. Maybe you wouldn't have. I smiled. A bright, glassy smile which loosed the tears at last from my eyes. Whatever else. I was going to come away from this with more dignity than I'd had going in. He had misinterpreted my quote. Brave New World. Kane had surely taken it to mean the Huxley novel of a dystopian future. I had actually been reaching back for the original Shakespeare, which Aldous had commandeered for his book title. Will had put it, O oh, Brave New World, that has such people in it. They were hopeful words, sincere ones. I sat on the bench and gazed out at the familiar scenery, and of course it was all monstrously strange and alien now. I believed everything Cain had said. Soon this pastoral town, like everywhere else in the world, would be overrun by people who had been turned into murderous psychopaths by a cunning bioengineered bug. Those people would kill everything that moved. Probably I and my fellow residents at the facility wouldn't be able to do much damage, even with our systems revved up to the point of absolute madness. But the staff was fit and able. Luckily there are a lot of meds floating around a typical living care facility. I was confident I could assemble enough pills in the right combination and quantity so to avoid what was coming. Kane and I had finished my gin. He needed my advice. He knew I'd been interacting up close with the school kids. I might be able to intuit which of them if any, had made some kind of forward evolutionary leap. I remembered as a boy wondering, fancifully, if I were truly apart from my rougher, coarser fellows, if I might somehow be of a different species entirely. I hadn't been, though. Those were just daydreams. I lit a cigarette. I felt calm. The afternoon was waning. The main batch of youngsters had already passed by but Jemmy would show up at our designated time, no doubt full of theories about the bunker, eager to discuss them with someone who would take him seriously. Would he believe me when I told him what I took to be the urgent truth of the matter? Would he agree to let himself be strapped into that freakish machine, knowing that his personality would be obliterated in transit, 
but that his superior physical being would be cared for and retrained, and would help to save humankind of the future. I didn't know, but I would relate all this to him when he arrived. Jemmy deserved the dignity of making his choice. Eric Del Carlo has been selling his fiction for over two decades. His short stories have appeared in Asimov's, Strange Horizons, and many, many other venues. His novels, both solo and collaborative, have been published by Ace Books, Dark Star Books, Loose Id, and other houses. His latest book is The Golden Gate is Empty, written with his father, Vic Del Carlo, and it's currently available from White Cat Publishing. Eric is a native Californian and a Hurricane Katrina refugee. Find him on Facebook for comments and questions. This has been a production of the Brick Moon Fiction Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review on iTunes, as it helps us find a bigger audience. For more information on Brick Moon and special offers, sign up for the Brick Moon Fiction newsletter at brickmoonfiction.com. Thank you for listening.